It is September. It's the month of September. Skies are blue right here in upstate New York. We're looking at a day of, uh, I don't know, I think it's still in the 60s. I'm not somebody who covets wearing a sweatshirt. I'm not big into getting like a pumpkin latte, you know, in late August. But nonetheless, it feels kind of good. This fall stuff comes too early, doesn't it, Michael? Well, as we said, when we We've been talking about the barn swallows leaving and the fall coming. Now, uh, so we had really hot and humid weather uh-huh. maybe a week ago. Well, the last time we talked, well, when we talked about cloud busting. Yeah. And it was really warm here. And um, remember I told you that I was trying to pull over some rain and, <laughs> and it made it three miles south of us, but it didn't really hit us. And but Epic there was cloud busting fail. Well, no, no, no. Listen, listen. So okay. and I told you that. When you do it, you, you, there's the pulling over method, but there's also the the way that you can just leave it there and you ch- kind of change the, the the envelope. And within 24 to 48 hours, you get rain. Okay. And we got a heck of a lot of rain 48 hours oh, after that. Good, good, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and it was funny because my wife kept saying she was looking at the weather maps. Go, you got to pull that over. You got to pull. I'm not going to touch it because I already had it out, and it's going to trust me. It's going to rain within 48 hours. Well, awesome. you better go do it. You better go do it right now. I'm not going to do it. So we had these, and like I said, other couples don't have these arguments, but we did. <laughs> things, things that couples into cloud busting are. I'm telling about. you, man. Yeah. Episode 25 of the Regeneration Podcast, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Regeneration Podcast, uh, Michael. And uh, yours truly, Mike Sauter, with you. Uh, today, we have a guest. Um, his name is Hunter Scholl, and he's uh, a college student I've known for a couple of years now. He's he's a real blend of totally unique, but also gets, well, to an outsider, really gets his generation's sensibilities uh, exceedingly well. Um, and so it's, uh, am I pronouncing your last name right? You know, I've known you yeah, as Hunter for some Okay, yeah, Hunter no, Scholl. Yeah, right, Mike. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you about your background right now, but before Michael signed on, we were just talking about, um, I'm at, I'm at SUNY Geneseo campus right now in the state university of New York. And it's always been seen as kind of a liberal campus and as years have gone by and Michael Martin, you'll get this, you know, as many or more people are wearing tie dyes and grateful dead t-shirts, but it, it has no connections to whether somebody's actually free spirit and relaxed. And Hunter was just talking about that. What's your experience? You kind of went that route, Hunter. Um, yeah, so my background is um, just, I, I grew up in, in the suburbs of Syracuse um, and kind of just lived in that sort of ingenuous, sort of inauthentic sort of, you know, I grew up in that. So I was always very interested in philosophy. I always wanted to be like a free spirit. I grew up doing martial arts. So I was very kind of already, I had one foot in the the East, if you will. And then I kind of came across like the, the Grateful Dead and stuff when I was in high school. So I kind of really took that persona on for a while. And I went through like a really rough, rough, respectively like looking back at it like it was rough looking back um but like a new agey sort of thing because I was really trying to find myself and it was finding myself this is what I was saying to Mike is that I was very anxious so I put on this persona that was like this complete 180 of that but it was really just that it was a persona I I was like that for a while and I almost convinced myself that that's that was a an authentic expression of myself um, and I think that's what I, I've been seeing a lot on campus, like actually like book mental note because it's still this week. So we're just getting through the first week of classes here and I've seen so many dead shirts and like, I'm very keen on that. Cause like, I know that's, you know, that yeah. iconography, if you will, very well, and I'm seeing it everywhere. And I'm like, part of me is like, do you really listen to the dead? Cause I'm a really big fan, but also it's like, we're, <laughs> we're putting on a, a show. We're putting on a persona. I am relaxed. I'm 
free spirited. I'm all of these kinds of things. And I think it's a lot of people that maybe aren't really like that at their core and they're trying to fake it till you make it kind of thing. That's a good aspiration in one sense. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm in this Eastern philosophy class and this was the first day of classes. We're sort of talking about ourselves and there's a student and he just brings up that he's like done psychedelics and stuff. So the conversation sort of like turned to that too. So I think it's, it's uh, it can be a little bit of muddy waters when it comes to that. Cause you enter that space and you sort of enter these other things too, where I start, I think on Sunday we had the, uh, what's father, what was his name? Mike um, on Sunday, the, his homily about. Oh, father of Mark. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, so I think it's, it's a slippery slope into that realm. And I, I, I in terms of our, my generation, if that's something that you guys want me to talk about, I'm seeing a lot of that people sort of ending up in that, that downstream of new age sort of uh, woo woo kookiness, if you will. Huh. Not that it's all bad, but it, it, it can get very messy. So what's your sensibility with that? Michael break in any time when you're saying that, you know, and you're right. And I've talked to you a lot, Hunter. To label something new age isn't definitely bad. Like if you were to unpack that, you know, you're not somebody uh, that I know that would just say like somebody outside the Catholic fold, bad, you know, and I, well, I know that totally, truly. Uh, mm-hmm. How would you unpack that a little bit? If you, you, so you see somebody sliding into this with the main, to look at that slide, are you seeing that they're sliding into something that is going to take them to a dark place? Does it just seem so artificial and contrived? Like why does it even have a negative connotation? Um, I think the negative connotation is simply... Um, that there's not, in, and I'll relate this a little bit to another thing that I understand well, and that's martial arts, is the new age Enos is, it's a very self-inventive sort of culture, very much so. And I think that's a lot of the culture. I mean, even in terms of like the gender theory and stuff now, a lot of my generation, because there wasn't, there's not a strong cultural foundation of like, who are we? What are we doing? There's a lot of self-invention. And with the new aginess, there is a lot of self-invention and stuff isn't very consistent. Whereas in, whether it's like Buddhism or you're Muslim or you're a Christian, you, you have a sort of set, you have a, you have a discipline. It's a very undisciplined thing. So people end up with some strange ideas and it'd be like, if you're a martial artist and you're going to go into a, you're going to go into the ring and you don't have a, a system of what you're doing. You're kind of just like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to throw this in. And it's not going to work. And then you might end up in a place where you're worse off than you were in the beginning because you actually don't have a roadmap. And I think that's probably the biggest issue is that there's, there's no roadmap when you're just kind of, for, and don't get me wrong, we have to be spiritual explorers. I think that's huge. That's part of the reason I ended up coming to the faith. But you have to eventually find some sort of roadmap. And I think there are some kids that aren't finding them. So then they're trying psychedelics and they're, they're dropping ass and stuff because they want to find themselves. And then they end up in this place where they're like, how did I get here? I'm more depressed. I'm more aimless than I've ever been. And I've, I've had a couple friends of mine that have gone down that path for sure. Well, it's a classic story, right? I mean, this is not mm-hmm. <clears throat> just uh, something characteristic of 2022. I mean, this was this was going on when I was a kid. This was going on when you ever read the book by Herman Hesse, Damien, right? Which is the same story right there. It, um, and it's and it's attempted to, to try to find the truth because now I don't know about you, Hunter. I mean, if you grew up in in a in a practicing Christian household or anything, but uh, whether people do or don't, you get to about twenty two and or twenty twenty two, and you're like, I need to figure something out. I need to figure out what's real. I remember when I was, I tell the story to my students all the time. I said, I'll never forget. I was 19 years old and I would know exactly where I was standing. And I realized I didn't have an idea in my head that was mine. 
it was all stuff I'd either, you know, inherited from my parents or from my peers or what, you know, my working class Catholic background mm-hmm. or, but it wasn't, I didn't have any ideas. I didn't know anything really. I, I parroted things and it, it terrified me. I'll think, wow, I, maybe I should start reading books. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I wasn't in college. So I, so I started reading mm-hmm. a lot, you know, and like you said, you know, I was, and I realized, I mean, I had been pretty philosophical even as a teenager, but I didn't, they didn't have, I, I took a philosophy class in, in high school, but the teacher was so dull that everybody fell asleep, whether they tried to stay awake or not. They, everybody fell asleep. He was so dull. And that was my isn't that, isn't that the devil when they take these powerful things like philosophy and kill it early with you oh, by yeah. giving it the boring? This guy, he had a voice like a like a hypnotherapist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, oh. It was a white noise machine for a voice. Right? Yeah, we're all sleep deprived teenagers anyway. That's all we yeah. needed. Yeah. I, I told my experience with that too is um, I, I can identify with you, Hunter, right? And uh, Michael, exactly. I two two episodes when I realized how dumb I was, you know, I graduated uh, honors and everything. My GPA was high. I never went to class, but I, I found out how to beat the system. No cheating. Just like, what does the professor want to hear? But my dad, I remember distinctly, my dad was talking something about affirmative action. And I answered the question I inserted. I said, I took a class on that dad. And I heard myself say that. And I, it felt like that statement wasn't, it's was just so untethered from anything real, you know, and this podcast is all about the real, that I heard myself say it. And then I'll tell people that I worked in a factory there for, for like three years, night shift, just to clear my head. And then when I, uh, I was still lost when I decided, my mom pointed out in a church bulletin that there was this grad school locally that would teach theology. And I was kind of, I wanted to throw up like, well, mom, you want me to be a Jesus freak? What's going on? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I took an exploratory class and I felt good there, but it was my second or third class it was on sacramental theology and I was going to write kind of the paper on offer. But then I realized I was going to, I was going to ignore the assignment and I was going to say how I thought sacraments worked, but it was my first time to, to write anything uh, about like what I actually thought from my heart of hearts. It was like, I researched it like a scientific experiment, you know? Um, what do you think Hunter? Um, I think that that reflection of, wow, I actually don't know that stuff. I think Maybe the uh, we'll talk part of it is that you know generational gap. Like, what are we experiencing here that might make it a little bit different than the you know that's the hey self discovery. I don't know things I need to discover to find uh-huh. myself. That's definitely a universal thing. But I think the thing that makes it different now is that we have so much information. We have too much, and then people just take it in. And like I was saying about the class, you know, the kids talking about psychedelics, and he brings up Terrence McKenna and all these things. He thinks that everything that he's saying, Terrence McKenna is awesome. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Like, like he legitimately with the way that he was expressing himself he like he like because i've already been down that road a little bit the, the stuff he started like i literally knew what he was going to say before he was going to say it and he thought that he was like being authentic he thought that he was coming from you know the, the roots of him who he was and it was like it was just sort of this thing that i've heard before um and i think it's because we have so much information that it's hard to realize that we are parroting things and i think that's an issue and it doesn't mean that he can't or that you know people can't eventually figure out that oh wow a lot of these thoughts that i have aren't really my own individual thoughts but i think that's definitely muddies those those waters for sure is that there's just so mm-hmm. much information that it's hard to even tell oh wow that's actually not my thought that's somebody else and i'm just saying that like i know it yeah and a little a little I contextual piece here too is that um 
you know, I'm working and I can't speak for Michael, you know, but I'm working lately from a framework and it's probably been articulated here, but like I articulate anything, I make it more confusing, but there's these things going on now that again, it's kind of, it's always been this way. And yet something has changed dramatically. You know, so yesterday I was meeting with the vice president in charge of student life here. And they were talking about the mental health of young people. And he said, yeah, all these trends were going in terms of leading into COVID. But then it also changed so, so, so drastically that nobody knows what to do. We've lost, you know, it, it kind of, we lost the ability to get a handle on it. So, you know, I've mentioned before at the first time I'm thinking like, I still get, I think young people, but something has so radically changed. It's one of the reasons like Hunter, you're here when we had Aiden on and we're going to continue. Mike has his own children. He's got other college kids because it's not like the whole world changed, but something is real, really different too, you know? Um, you know, so I appreciate that. Let me, let me read a quote that was left on the other one, you know, cause it does, it does tie in. So on the podcast where we had uh, my son, who was another young person talking about some of this, uh, somebody Christian Guild says, as someone who was raised by Gen X and finds himself situated between millennial and Gen Z, it was so fascinating, refreshing to hear someone in season hear similar things that I do. And I really hope that this trend continues for the sake of humanity. Otherwise, I fear that there's this great doom on the horizon, and I honestly can't fathom how to escape it unscathed. I do think one difference between Gen Z and the younger millennials, including myself in this category, is that we would still emphasize, in my opinion, in my view, in my experience, et cetera, as opposed to making universal statements, even if we thought they were universal as such. I think this is due to the influence of the relativism of the older millennials while noticing the same issues in Gen Z. Um, so I, you know, I don't need to continue there, but it's somebody and young people I'm meeting, they're, they're really convinced that they can't communicate with the generation above too much. You know, and there is, if nothing else, there's this massive sense of hopelessness. Again, massive increase in mental illness, but a wild, exponentially increased sense of hopelessness. And there is nothing there in us for the future. You know, no pension, no jobs that could pay bills. And, you know, I'm still trying to unpack this. I just thought I'd share that from this nice commentary. Um, so, you know, actually, here's, here's, I just wrote an email to Christian Guild. This awesome. <laughs> he emailed me a couple of days ago. Isn't this great? <laughs> um, <clears throat> and he actually, he lives a little very far. He's, he, I, okay. I'm trying to get him to come from Michaelmas. Nice. Uh, now, one of the things I have started assigning students to read in some of my classes is uh, the Gnostic fairy tale, The Hymn of the Pearl, which if you, if you know this. And if you don't know it, uh, David Bentley Hart's new book, Kino Gaia is based on that as as is terence malick's film the knight of cups and the the whole idea of the of the hymn of the pearl it's it's a gnostic story about the son of the king who's sent into egypt to retrieve this pearl that's guarded by a serpent but his father would tell you know in classic fairy tale fashion there's a prohibition you know when you go there don't don't dress like them and don't eat their food or you'll forget forget who you are Mm -hmm. and of course the boy goes there gets gets a friend eats the food forgets who he is right so he doesn't know who he is and which is i think uh something that happens to a lot of young people especially when they go to college you know or, or myself too i mean i i always use the example of myself so when i was 18 years old i got a record deal and we had i mean we had a, i mean for for a local band we had a lot of success locally and internationally and but that's a lot for a kid who's 18 right and I lost, I forgot who I was. And I was, it was not completely debauched, but it was, it was, it was not something I wanted my kids to do. Right. And uh, I saw things by the time I was 21 that 
<laughs> most people don't see in their entire uh-huh. lives, including, you know, there's uh, a great story. This is a, we played a gig at uh, the Ritz in New York City when I was, Not a, I was, I was 19. Place. Yeah. I was 19. And the, the, the booking agent uh, who worked there, you know, he was obviously gay. But we liked him. He was let us play the gig. And then we played uh, a few days later, maybe a week later, we played a gig at CBGB's, the classic punk club. I know it well. Yeah. My brother in law lived right across the street from that club. Oh, it was a dump. But it was great. I love that place. (laughs) That's my my kind of place. So we played this gig there and he came to this gig and he kept, and our drummer kept trying to tell me, this guy's trying to get me drunk to take me home, but I'm not going to fall for it. So, and he wasn't drinking too much. And the guy kept working on it. I kept working at him. And the, and our drummer never went, you know, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't take the bait, <laughs> but, but, and we, kept, and we kept teasing and we said, you're just imagining this. You're crazy. You just think everything's about you. We were, we were teasing, but just last year, this promoter came out with his autobiography and he describes exactly what he was trying to do, which was exactly that. And names the, and names my drummer by name. Really? Yeah. I mean, he didn't, he didn't mention his last name, but he mentioned the name of the band and the name. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And uh, that's, I mean, that was definitely going into the land of eater food, right? <clears throat> and that's what happens in the film, uh, The Night of Cups. It, it's uh, Christian Bale and some Christian others. Bale, and he plays this screenwriter who goes to Hollywood to be a screenwriter. I think it's it's loosely based on Terrence Malick's experience as a screenwriter, and he forgets who he is. And what happens in both the fairy tale and, and in I think human life is eventually. You get a message from your father. Remember why I sent you. You know, remember why you're on Earth. Basically, remember the task I had given you. And the boy wakes up. And I think it's it's a it's a the classic mythological uh, sequence of uh, leaving, finding something, and returning. It's the it's Orpheus in the underworld, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> but I think, and I think. Uh, Maybe that doesn't happen to everybody. I don't think it does, but I think it happens to a, a lot of people. And it's, it happens to the kind of people who, who want to know why we're here, you know, what the meaning of life is, right? So they're find it, trying to find something, but, but you get lost along the way. A lot of people get lost and never, never come back. They eat the food of the Egyptians and like, or the psychedelics and, and go on dead tours and never come back, right? Oh, absolutely. I've never come back. I mean, I, yeah. I mean what are, you, are you about 19 or 20? I'm 21. You're 21. Yeah. So people, then you go to these dead shows and there are guys older than I am. Yeah. And they're just, they're stuck in that, that yeah. space. That's kind of where they ended up. And that was my experience. Absolutely. So I was, I was raised Catholic, but not really in your sort of typical, you know, go to catechism on Sunday, go to, you know, Sunday school. And, and I, I didn't like it. It seemed um, overbearing and sort of authoritarian, if you will, especially as I was g- g- growing up and, I really didn't like that kind of stuff. So the sort of the entrance into that land of Egypt, if you will, was really a, a reaction to that. And I remember not wanting to be confirmed. And I was talking to my dad and he was like, just, you don't get it right now. Cause he was, he was, he was, especially growing up, like he was an altar server. Like he, he did a lot. He was, he was very Catholic. He was like, all my, in my grandparents. Yeah. yeah my mm-hmm. grandparents were very Catholic. He sort of turned away because of some of the current church politics be those as they are. Um, but he was like, just do it. Just, just trust me on this. You don't get it now, but do it. Oh, yeah. And then I, I went down. I thought I was, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and then I went down the path Buddhism and sort of the whole Eastern thing. And um, I was meditating a lot, I was listening to the Grateful Dead and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And I thought like, 
this is it. I found it. And it was right after I graduated high school. It was my senior year. And I go into this, this, uh, we have a friend, we had a friend that was Egyptian. And she was Coptic, Coptic Orthodox. And they, you know, they had, they were having this festival and you could go into the church during this festival and just kind of like see what it was all about. And up front in the Orthodox church is the iconostasis. And I'd never seen one before. And I was, I mean, it was a really subtle, quiet, honestly, like mystical experience where I was yeah. seeing this iconostasis for the first time and I was drawn to it. I was, I was drawn into this <laughs> sense of meaning that I'd never felt before. Into a and sacred I talked space. To this, like, yeah, exactly. And I talked to this guy afterwards and I was like, what is this? And he goes, oh, well, this is actually a, this is a Russian iconostasis that was here from the previous ah. Russian Orthodox church. And it just clicked for me because I was born in Russia and then I was adopted into the States and stuff. So I was kind of like, that's weird. I have so a theory, Michael, that Sergius Bulgakov's wife nursed Hunter as an infant. <laughs> she would have been Pretty a little old there. at the time. That's yeah. <laughs> it, okay. was like, it was like Sarah <coughs> from the Old Testament. But go ahead, Hunter. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're totally good. And um, but then I ended up talking to him and he told me about like the Desert Fathers and stuff, because they're Egyptian and stuff, so they're very keen on the Desert Fathers. And I went home and I looked up the Desert Fathers and I was like, my mind was blown at the sort of mystical frame of meaning that I'd been looking for the whole time that was like finally starting to peek out at me. But it was all by by not accident. It was all by grace. And I think some people, like you're saying, Michael, is some people are receptive to that and then they'll end up finding their way back home. And some people just they don't necessarily maybe have the ears to hear or maybe they just it's not their time yet. Or some people just say, nah, I don't like that stuff anyway. And I think they stay where they feel well, comfortable, even if well, it's not. Well, well uh, Valentin Tomberg mm -hmm. alludes to this in Meditations on the Tarot, and he says, you know, some people just want need to know. They can't just go along, right, to get that along. Was some me. people just need yeah, to know, yeah, right? Yeah. And and I think, and it's not everybody. I mean, I, I don't even, some, some of my kids are not the kind of people who need to know. But if we They're see okay. the pain people are in, do we, is there a way? So obviously evangelization, like, you know, hitting somebody over the head with Jesus talk or something is, 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 is horrible. But is there, is there something we could do to help people? You know, I always tell people that the beginning of the Bible, right? It, it's for me, it starts when God asks Adam, where are you? Which kind of gets at the hymn of the pearl, you know, but um, how could we, cause we still want to, I want to address this suffering. I think you're right. Some of us, we don't want to say genetically are prone to ask where we are, but I'd like to hear from both of you. Like, isn't there something we can do looking at the pain around us to get people to ask that question more? Like, where am I? What's going on here? The phrase, what's going on here, is something I utter to myself 50 times a day at the microcosmic level to the macrocosmic yeah, level. Yeah, like last yeah. night when I was watching that bizarre speech. <laughs> I didn't even watch it. Oh, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. It was, it was like, wow. <laughs> that was surreal. But anyway, yeah, yeah. But yeah, what do you what do you think we could do, Hunter? Like, you know, to give more people can can we help them get to that place where they, you know, they scream out from the abyss? Like, I want to know what's going on. Um, I think you just said it though, scream out from the abyss. There has and I think part of the you you see it a lot on camp, Mike, because you're you're yeah. here and you you see it, the 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 anxiety, the hopelessness. The pain. I think the pandemic sort of it opened a wound that was already there. And I think people are starting to ask what's going on because things are so, and you know, who knows what the future has in store. But I think that's unfortunately partially what's necessary because that's kind of the place that I was in when I was finally receptive to um, sort of meaning that was beyond my comprehension and, and things that were starting to 
pull me in a certain direction. I had to be in that place. And I think there are a lot of people post COVID and post sort of, you know, this current economic situation. There's a lot of stuff like that. So Hunter, not to interrupt, how are you educated K-12? Public school. Public school. Go public well, schools. Just kidding. <laughs> no, well, because what, what I and I talk about this with students and I've been talking about this with students for 20 years, you know, um, and I notice less and less do students come to college equipped with a decent writing skills uh, or my my experience is that none of them or very few have ever been in a f- kind of formal setting where they've been asked the life question. This is what uh, Pierre Hadot, the, the French philosopher, says in his book, uh, philosophy is a way of life. You know, because the life questions are, I always tell students, was super simple. I mean, it's, it's at first, you know, I tell them philosophy is just asking really dumb questions like, why am I here? Or what are you doing today? And, but when you start to unpack a little bit, then you actually realize, I don't know what I'm doing today. I don't know why I'm here. Why don't I? Right? Mm-hmm. And so... And, and and so there's a even my own kids who were homeschooled. I mean, my, these kids read Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides and Shakespeare in high school, and they were they would complain the whole time. I said, trust when you get to college, you will be the only person who has ever read this stuff who because you'll be the only person who has ever been presented the life question, right? Or just about the only person. And I think that's 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 what I see with a lot of students. And and then in my classes, and I have taught in urban colleges right now, I teach at a kind of a rural college. Um, it's universal. I don't care what the racial or ethnic or religious background of the kids are. They've never had to have this. And then when you give them the opportunity to think about this, they're like, whoa. For instance, just this last week, uh, I'm teaching a class on rhetoric and writing theory. And I had them read uh, Plato's Gorgia, which is uh, a dialogue. And it, you know, it has a lot of the life questions show up like not only about uh virtue and a lack of virtue about justice and injustice but also about what the role of language is and of writing is is that you know what is persuasion right what's the difference between persuasion and propaganda right which no one ever gets asked these questions and and it was really profitable in our discussions and this class was surprised at how I was first of all, I was surprised that so many read the text, but I was surprised that how into it they were. They were. They wanted to talk about this because they could see that this 2300 year old text still was relevant and even more relevant now in the age of we're in the age of propaganda or in propaganda wars than anything. So, I mean, this these the life questions, there's a reason Socrates was asking, there's a reason that. The history of philosophy has been, and I should say more more recent times, continental philosophy has been attentive to the, rather than paying attention to uh, uh, the appropriation of ideology by so-called philosophers like Judith Butler, uh, who don't ask the life question, but who promote a, a kind of political ideology through the, the appearance of philosophy. And I don't think it is philosophy at all. Because the philosophy mm-hmm. is about well, the love of wisdom first, of, and in the path to, you know, as it said, right, know thyself. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the task. Let's tr- let's do that first. Having subbed in a high school last year, I think you know somebody should write a book. The life questions I heard uttered were usually in the cafeteria, and it's like, what constitutes the material inside this chicken nugget? You know, <laughs> but at least there's a sense of wonder there, and maybe we could begin. But you yeah. know, your point your point is so well <laughs> and, taken, and then discussed. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> 
And again, maybe I don't lead it to like how animals are treated. Uh, What's your take, Hunter? Um, I think you guys are starting to point to something that I was actually having a conversation with my my, my roommate last night. And we were like, because I was mentioning that this was something I was going to do this morning. And I was like, you know, here's some of my thoughts. And frames of meaning are really important. But especially like I was saying, I was public school, all that kind of stuff. The frames of meaning that at least from my experience, and I'm going to assume it's probably pretty similar for most in my generation, at least in my public school, which is a lot of people, is the frames of meaning that we were given were these political ideologies. And there are these things that they hear. We have this bucket of political ideology. Here you go. This is what the meaning of the world is. And I think a lot of kids, like they take that and you see some people, I think that's why we see a sort of, at least my generation, like a hyper activist sort of, you know, Mike, would you say that the 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 They've college sort of pushes yeah. that? Yeah. yeah, I mean that, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. the 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 frame of meaning that we've been sort of handed, and a lot of kids are either they completely take to it and it becomes a sort of religious thing, or they don't take to it at all and they kind of are in this space. And this is very well said. Continue. Yeah, like, and come. and we're asking those life questions. I think there's a lot of kids that just have not been allowed. They haven't even been. They haven't even seen that that's, those are questions that you can ask or those are questions that you can answer and that, that necessarily you can answer them, but that you can sit in the wonderment and the mystery of like, oh, wow, like, you know, and there's something about being in that space of, of wonderment. And I think with the, the material is sort of bent that a lot of this generation is on, too, is a lot of they just want the answer. They don't they don't want a quick answer. Feel, they don't feel comfortable in that space of being like, well, it's a mystery. We don't know. And I think both of those things lead to the sort of hyper anxious, like if you if you want an answer and you can't sit in mystery, of course, you're going to be anxious because there are some questions you just can't have an answer to. And um, and then they're not presented with, like I said before, like a discipline to sort of engage with those sort of things or they've never been exposed to it at all. So what they have to fall back on in terms of a frame of meaning where they can connect to other people, because that's what we want. That's what I found very deeply in the church. And I don't mean that like. I go to church and I go to coffee hour after and I just talk to people. I mean that in like a really more cosmic sort of way. Like we're, we're all saying the Nicene Creed together. We're all saying the Our Father together. Yeah. It's like we're like connected in this really strong frame of meaning. And like there's there's a real communion here. And that's what well, a lot I, of kids are looking for. And they're not finding it. Yeah, I think what, what, you're, what you're talking about, there's, there's several things going on here, right? So first of all, is even when you're when you're a deadhead, right? You're looking for a community. You're looking for who are my people, right? And a church is, well, it can be a community, right? Very we often wish it my, could be better, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, that's why Dorothy Day called it the long loneliness because, you know, you can go to church. I don't know anybody in this place. I, or I Annie this. Dillard's essay on uh, trekking to the pole, right? How silly yeah. it can seem, right? But uh, so there's that, and, we, and there's a, this attraction for community, and I think people have a hunger for it because we live in such impersonal spaces. I mean, that's not, we don't have, we don't have a sense of community. And I, I had to stop. We were Byzantine Catholic, but we'd have to drive an hour to go to church. And I was like, this is nuts. This is insane. This is not a community. This is, I mean, I don't, you know, these are not the people I live in. I mean, I like these people. These are not the people I live with. Right. So how do we, how do you do that? And I, I think modernity has totally destroyed that, you know, we, in fact, now we, we talk about community it's the gay community, the cigar smoking community, or the whatever, right? It's and they're not communities either. 
It doesn't, that word, you keep using the word, I don't think it means what you think it means. So there's that. <laughs> but the other part of it is, and I think this is what you're responding to too, Hunter, is uh, we don't expose young people to the to these wisdom traditions. So when you read the Desert Fathers, you're, you're entering into a wisdom. Or when you know, I, there was a course I was teaching, when I'd love to teach it again, where, uh, I can't remember the name of the course. It was at a Dominican school nearby. Uh, and uh, I haven't seen them since COVID. But uh, what if they're all gone? What happened? Well, so it was a course. So one of the things we read was uh, the Tao Te Ching. Which is, if you read, I remember the first time I read that when I was about 20, I was like, yeah, this is, wow, this is beautiful. I, this gives me stuff to think about. And we also read uh, Marcus Aurelius and we read the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead because, uh, you know, this is you know, being immersed in these kinds of wisdom traditions. They are, they are all of them uh, preoccupied with the life questions, even the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, you read it, it's about, it's about the excarnating soul going into the afterworld or afterlife and then reincarnating and, and how does that work and it's a it's really it's a beautiful uh example of psychology as far as i'm concerned i think it's the best book ever written on purgatory to tell you the truth and uh but you're but even that you you know you have you can you have so you do the tibetan book of the dead and you you have here's a life question what happens after we die Right. Mm -hmm. So the Tibetan Buddhists have have one interpretation. Some Christians have another interpretation, but it's worth thinking about. And even new yeah. atheists will go, we just go out like a candle. Oh, that's fun. Uh, but why do <laughs> But then the other thing is, why do all these traditions all over the world until modernity have some, uh, I could say, philosophy or theology or at least understanding of what happens after we die? that can't be explained through reductive kind of materialism, but all of them have this, right? You know, yeah. all these wisdom traditions have this and they don't, and, and they assume it's real because it, it, it's, it's not a wish fulfillment. It's their experience. It's their experience that this is true. Everybody thinks it's wish fulfillment. Well, all the materialists and, and the scientific materialists do, but there is yeah, Hunter. I, before you respond, there's their... this notion. This notion of being able to sit with these, though, is still key. Mm -hmm. You know, everything Michael's saying is 100 percent true. I remember, like, uh, we're all speaking from the same book here, friend. But it, I was teaching social studies at a Catholic high school, and a book the students really responded to back in the early 90s was. Um, Krishnamurti, I think it was called Think on These Things. But then specifically, one I read, uh, the concept was creative discontent, right? You know, that discontent, sitting with discontent can be very creative. And, um, you know, that goes to your point, sitting with this. And that, you know, Michael talked about the distinction between like a, a community and a crowd. You know, when we talk about the gay community, we're talking about in some sense or any other community. It's a focus to do with group. The gay. Yeah, it's a focus it's a group. Focus it's a group. crowd. Received opinions. Let's go to a political one, especially. A better example is like the democratic community or something. Oh. You know, the worst. But the um, so well, with creative discontent, you have the dis distinction between um, the, well, you, you know, you're, you're sitting there. And again, is it creative or is it clever? Or is it creative, right? So discontent leads to creativity like an artist. But when you're in a crowd with uh, like the Democratic Party, all you can be is clever, you know, and Michael in his books. And I've when I read your book, I think it was probably Submerged Reality. It could have been in Transfiguration. Really? You're the only other person who got at it so clearly. But I've always thought like movies made by committee, right? 
what we're calling these Disney things, they're very clever. And it doesn't mean we can't enjoy them. But movies made by committee aren't creative. They're not cutting something new. They're not cutting something new. And so eventually you're in a hall of mirrors, you know, and we're all waiting for the new Minions movie or something. And I, I don't want to just be a killjoy. But this stuff, it's too much for me to handle, you know, but creative discontent will lead to creativity, um, crowd formations and no discontent. You're never going to find any creative solutions to your life. You're never going to find that question. Where are you? Right. You know, no. and, and I think the other thing is we get and this is, I think, uh, part of the problem of uh, our electronic media is is that uh, so we talk about, say, the gay community, Sakara smoking community feminist community women they're stereotypes those are not i mean those are, and you know you assume they assume that all women are are pro-abortion which is insane because you know millions and millions of women who are pro-life right yep or they assume that if you're gay you don't like trump and i know dozens of gay people who, who voted for Trump and would vote for him again, right? So it defi- and the, those kinds of uh, labels are, are in a way, uh, it's a kind of propaganda to shut down conversation because they yeah, try to make you assume that everybody of a particular thing believes the same way. Black people, black people are all Democrats, which is baloney, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, constricting so- too. It doesn't allow people to be... Uh, the individuals we and when you see the world in that frame because that's a that's a that's a lens through which you see the world i don't see the world that way or at least the very right. least if i do i try and remedy it well, in, it's in the all best there. way that i can it's out there and this is how the, i mean the archons this is how they want you to think right which Absolutely. is what mike and i have have a patron saint william blake which he, which he calls mental slavery right for right. sure. Yeah. This is what it is. And it, and don't let yourself be enslaved. And, and this is a question, right? So that has lived with me for, I don't know how long, probably since the first time I read William Blake when I was about 23 or 22, is that how do we know that we're not manipulated or brainwashed? I asked the I ask question. I've been asking students this for years. How do you know? Or if we do think it's possible, it's never us. It's always the problem. Somebody else, right? Those people are brainwashed. <laughs> it's <laughs> never us, right? We're never the ones, but we're all being manipulated all the time. And it's, it's, uh, we're at an incredibly sophisticated level of it right now. And I think we saw this more in the last two years. It's almost out of the, out of the closet and people still deny it's happened. Yeah. And I think, and what I've at least seen myself with my generation is we were, you know, post 9-11, the, 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 uh, the system of propaganda, the system with the internet and all that kind of stuff, it becomes it's so much harder to be in the water and to see it. Like it's really hard to have your head above it. Right. And I think a lot of kids, they will be clever. They'll be, they'll say the thing that they think they should be saying. And they think that it's a legitimate, authentic, because we're just, we're so deep in it. And I, yeah. I don't, I'm just, I'm very grateful that I have perhaps the, uh, this, this gift to like maybe see above a little bit. And I think partly it's just because I've tried to explore so much. Um, but a lot of kids We've, we're so deep in it that we don't even see that, like, we don't even think it's a possibility that we're even there a lot, you know, and I, I see a lot of friends of mine, I was even like this for a little bit, where you don't even realize, like, oh, man, a lot of these ideas I have are just not, or these frames of reference that I have about the world are just really, uh, they're baloney, and they're just, they're not good, but you don't realize it, you're so deep in it, because our right. formative years have been where it's, you could probably say it's been some of the most insidious and 
under the radar, but very powerful. I yeah. wonder, Hunter, if for you that the um, you mentioned since a child you've been involved in martial arts. You know, when uh, when my son Aiden was on, he made a connection between Joe Rogan's popularity and the fact that his two areas of expertise, comedy, I don't think he's the funniest guy, uh, but uh, uh, comedy and martial arts, multiple martial arts. Again, these are the areas where you can't, you don't get participation trophies, right? Uh, Going back to this conversation I had with the uh, vice president of college, he said, you know, there's so many things they can't control, like ambient anxiety, this or that. Mm -hmm. But on this issue of the type of people we're building by not allowing kids to fail, and um, everybody, you know, getting participation trophies. Yep. He said, we are trying to address that by letting, like, if there's, right now, there's every verb has a student club, right? When I was in college, you had a couple of student clubs. Now, you know, somebody could take breathing. Okay, we're going to turn that into a club. You write the constitution. Um, We have a swimming team here at Geneseo. Then somebody still sets up a swimming club. And I wondered, where's the room for just like swim? People like to swim. That being said, they're, they're at the college, at the leadership level, they're trying to allow a lot of these clubs to die. Let the people who formed them to put it on their resume. If it's not working, uh, even years ago, they said they would have helped kind of keep them going. But again, your experience with martial arts and you're wondering why maybe your head was to be above water is that you, um, you, you, you have to deal with kind of real life on that, right? Again, it's one of the unique yeah. areas where, again, an unfunny comedian is going to learn failure. And, and, and you, an and untalented martial artist is going to end up with a bloody nose. Yeah. And like, that's the thing is you learn quick and you learn that. Uh, I think the biggest thing is obviously you learn struggle. You learn, I've learned hardship. I've, I mean, I've, I've been in the ring, I fought and stuff. And it's, it's something you have to commit to. And it's definitely something where you, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and, and a lot of hard work that goes into it. But I also think the primary thing is, is when I'm when I'm sparring or I'm in the ring or comedy, for example, or even this conversation, it's something where I have to be, I have to be totally here paying attention to this and being authentic. Even if it's my level of authenticity is maybe it's really low because I'm just starting to figure out who I am. I can't be parroting stuff. You can't go into the ring and not be focused on what you're doing or else you're gonna, you're, you can't, you can't do that. You have to learn how to dance. I think there are a lot of kids that just haven't because of the participation trophy like they don't know how to lose so they don't know how to win properly like we have to learn how to lose so that we can learn how to win in a way that's authentic and and yep. like actually real in some way you yeah, remember i was a school teacher in the early 90s and there was a big thing then trying to push non-competitive game we're gonna do that with the kids <laughs> that was the staple of youth <clears throat> ministry right oh, they called them ungames me. ungames was such a funny term but... yeah and then they couldn't figure out why the kids wouldn't want to play them yeah <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean yeah. What are they thinking about? Well, we want to, everybody needs to be a winner. Why? Uh-huh. What's, and what's again, if you get into the gender differences, the, I can turn an ungame into a competitive game in the and first they minute. They do. The yeah, kids yeah. do too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so funny. Yeah. So funny. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about um, Hunter. What else are you kind of seeing around you? So again, this is the worst phrasing of the question. I apologize to everybody, but um, you know, you're, I think you're pretty perceptive uh, you know, what would you think maybe. are the big things? Okay, but let's say, you know, and again, this this is maybe the most mundane question of the day, but what do you think, let me go into, you know, it's my interest. You know, I just received an appointment to run my local Catholic parish. Um, I'm a lay person, but uh, I'd run it before for about eight years, but it's a real blessing. You, you're just kind of taken away. You do other things. I worked at a monastery. Then the bishop called and just kind of put me back in place. And uh, 
I think the first time I just wanted to prove as a non-priest that I could probably imitate a priest. Now I have none of that compunction, right? I'm free. <laughs> but I thought I, you know, not that not that parish leadership needs a theme, but I am going to address, I'm going to ask for people's help with an open door policy to come and talk about what's going on with our young people. Again, because there's so much suffering and suicide in our community. Um, my daughter who teaches over in a nearby town, she was in a conversation with somebody who, again, can see smiling faces. Oh, the problem isn't so bad. And my daughter said, listen, it's my first year of teaching, and I've already sent so many lesson plans to the psych ward of Strong Memorial Hospital. It's not something I wanted to do. Um, oh. It's not something they trained me for. Uh, let, talk to me, you know, again, what are you seeing kind of mental health wise? Is there a way to get language for this? Is there a way to exaggerate it? Is it over-exaggerated? I don't think it's over-exaggerated at all. Um, I recently, uh, I won't go into details, but I've had some um, mental health issues personally, but also just um, in my family and stuff, we've had some pretty big, um, some, some moments um, in regards to that, that. So, so I don't think, I think if there's anyone who's like, oh, the anxiety or the depression of the, the, the younger generation is they're just, they're just weak and they're just, they're overblowing it and they just want attention. Like, I don't think that's true. Um, I don't know what the source of it is, but I will say very confident that it is, it seems a lot more prevalent. There's the there's a real sense of uneasiness, and I don't know again what the source of that was. I think I think COVID kicked up a lot of that dust for a lot of people. I know I know it did for me. And, and lockdowns and masks it. definitely contributed, like very concretely no, yeah. for me. And I yeah, and I think it was by design. I think it was yeah. by design. Oh, oh, I, I I agree about the by design portion as well. But I think it's still sticking. I think uh, we were Mike and I were at a we were at a Franciscan retreat. Uh, few months ago over in the spring and I, I i think i said the spirit of quarantine and it's still stuck for a lot yeah, even of after the masks are gone we all liked that phrase the spirit of quarantine remains even yeah. after the masks yeah. are gone yeah but i think it just it it latched on to the uh, anxieties and stuff that have already been there and i don't know what the sources of them are i don't know if it's this lack of re like reality that we're in you know the modernity the impersonalness and all that and it makes us as human beings kind of feel like Oh, you know, I don't have my tribe that you maybe would have used to have and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know what exactly the source of it is, but I can say very confidently that it seems like the mental health issue, it's definitely a real thing and it's not overblown. And it is definitely something that it needs a remedy. I don't know what that remedy is. I'm not the person to answer that question, but Michael, I'll share with you that the um again, what I heard yesterday is that, you know, you know, and none of us are gonna like mourn their their passing. But universities, especially in these this part of the country where there's not like demographic increase, you know, we have a demographic winter here. But uh, a real a real moment of humanity broke out between me and this administrator, saying, you know, all we're trying to do is to get students to come here to four-year college and to live here in our dorms, and so we can form them. But he goes at the same time, we we're on the cusp of telling a very significant percentage of students that you shouldn't come here. Not that we're too elite, but you you need services that we can't provide. You know, you can't hire your way out of this problem. If they added 50 more full-time, highly trained psychologists and things, they can't begin to get at it. So they need to communicate to people that maybe you need to take two classes a semester. Maybe you need to commute from home and make getting well your first priority. And that stayed with me, boy, you know, because well, again, the university is going to be working at cross purposes there because all they want is for people to come in the doors. Michael. Well, well, I've been in higher education for a long time. And, uh, <laughs> I know it's dying. I mean, I was at a school that died, you know, so, so I, I find myself out of a job. <laughs> Literally died. Yeah, it did. It really died. Um, and the rest of them are dying. I just talked talk to a friend whose wife 
works at a pretty big state university and she's in English department and her, her chair said, they want us to cut $10 million from the, the arts and humanities budget, which means they're going to start to cut loose uh, full, full professors and tenured professors, which be, and, and I mean, uh, that's tragic, but this is, I mean, they're, they're just aren't the people out there. They're, you know, they're, and that's, which is why schools are, you know, offering esports scholarships and other bowling scholarships just to get people in. Right. And most of those students, I wouldn't say most, but a good number of them shouldn't be in college anyway, because they don't want to really go. And that's from people who don't praise the ivory tower. They think no, just, they yeah. think they're supposed to go, but they can make it. In fact, uh, we had a guy fix our furnace about a year and a half ago. He said, do you have any kids? Well, a couple. And he, and, uh, he said, tell them to get into this field. I can't, you can't get anybody to work. My brother, in fact, my brother has a painting business. He can't find anybody to work. And my brother makes, I don't know, half a million dollars a year. He makes a lot of money. Um, and the pl- the heating and cooling guy, he said, you can make $100,000 a year doing this almost right out of the gate. So why go to college, right? If Unless you want to go to college for you know, the pursuit of wisdom. Now, if, if you go into the go into uh, medicine or tech or engineering, that might be, a, you can get a gig that way. Uh, sure. But in the humanities, in fact, and so what I, what I think is going to happen, or at least this is what I'm, once I, once I get through this CA, CSA season, I'll start putting it together, is I think that there is a room for a kind of uh, uh, what they called in Poland during uh, communism, a flying university, and what they call in, uh, well, in Irish history, a hedge. I think there's a possibility for uh, a kind of, uh, call it a Sophia University that's outside of this, and you could, you could do it by Zoom, you could do it in person, but where you have, you know, a, a non-institutional pursuit of wisdom you saw this in in the uh, with the american transcendentalists emerson and thoreau had schools yep. of maybe not 20 50 people where they people could study with to find wisdom and i think that, that what i've taught when i've seen in students and people like you hunter that there's a hunger for that and it and it and it's not generally offered through the institutional structure you know which is i think all the institutions are 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 in, in zombie mode right now. And, uh, but I think there's a possibility for, for this. And, and in fact, a, f- a couple of friends of mine said, you got to do this, Mike, you got to do this. And, like, I just haven't had time to do it, but w- one of my projects this I fall, need a free afternoon. Yeah. <clears throat> no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, I, I but agree though. Plan. There's, there's a big, um, there's, there's with a more than you would think, it's not the majority necessarily, but more than you would think there is that thirst for like that, that, that wisdom because um, they're just, it's not around us. I was in Italy over the summer and, you know, you just are walking the streets and you go into these churches or at every corner and the wisdom is there. It's there. The, you know, it's, it's because it's there in the cold, you know, you can go around, you can kind of see it and it's not doled out to you, but it's sort of impressed upon you. And we don't even really have that. So I think a lot of kids are realizing like, oh man, like when I go, when I walk down the street and I can see like a McDonald's and a Coles and a this and a that, they're like, well, where is that wisdom? So they're very much thirsting for it. And I think that's part of the reason is we don't have it yeah. impressed upon us in, by culture in the same way that maybe it used to be. Yeah. Well, I think, maybe well, I'm wrong, know, but it feels that way. So when I teach, you know, I always teach stuff I love because I know as a teacher that the word enthusiasm means to be filled with the God. So when I'm teaching literature, I totally get into it, right? Teaching the romantic poets. Whereas 
I don't think everybody, but lots of people in English study and literature, they don't teach out of a love for their subject. They teach basically out of a talent in writing and a talent in reading, but they, they basically want to teach you that you know, they teach through an ideological lens, whether it's feminism or Marxism or whatever. So basically you're trying to teach students that literature is a fraud and then they can't figure out why they can't get majors. <laughs> All these kids who love books and loved reading, love Shakespeare in high school, they go to study this and you're like, no, it's, it's just, they're all, it's all white men trying to rip you off, which is, which is tragic. But I, but I still, I, when I taught this course on romanticism last year, it was all women in the class and they were totally into it because we were luxuriating in the sensation of poetry right right not trying to prove what a what a creep or what a what a tool of the imperial uh that john keats was or whatever right we weren't playing that game we were in fact i think the reason you, when you do that you start with william blake you can't he's kind of like the palate cleanser okay we're going to do william blake first and then you're going to clear out he's all a battering ram yeah, yeah 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 he there it goes the whole thing. It's all gone now. Let's we can start fresh. He's bottomless, by the way. Bottomless. You know, I'm just staying with it. It's uh, so relevant. Now, Hunter, talk about college students going to be leaving for class. Uh, what we're yeah, going to do, so and I think Michael with, would agree. You've been I, so good, but we're going to have you back on again. Maybe yeah. monitor this year at some point. Get, give us some closing words and insights and thoughts, Hunter. Yeah, I think I think uh, Michael, you were just, and I think this kind of clicked with me as a as a as a my my closing thought is that for too long the We've been, as my, my generation, through the education system, through the political system that's have, have sort of been impressed upon us, is we've been told to, to analyze, look, be critical of everything. And we have not really been taught how to just experience things. Right. And that lack of just experiencing and just being in reality, I think, is one of the roots of the reason that yeah. we see so much anxiety, because kids don't know how to just be. I don't know how to just be. I'm... I'm, I'm just starting to learn because instead it's analysis, 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 analysis. And if all you know how to do, the only frame of the world you have is this analytical, a lot of times cynical, a lot of times well, it's, postmodern it's perception of the world. Yeah. yeah. If you're deconstructing the whole world, you can't live in it. We you know, in order to understand. Yeah. Well, right. And, and this is what my kind of my guiding principle as a, as a teacher has always been uh, this thing that Samuel Taylor Coleridge said that, you know, he who shows me that there are faults in a work of literature doesn't show me anything I couldn't figure out myself. Yeah. But he who shows me the wonders in a work of literature, now he's doing something, right? He's doing, he's offering me something for my soul. And I think that's something we have lost in education. Wonder, awesome. right? The word you used earlier. Yeah. To the Wonder, another great Terrence Malik movie. Hunter, you, uh, Hunter was recently gobsmacked by a slow, complete viewing of uh, Tarkovsky's uh, Andrei Rublev, Michael. So we'll have to talk yeah, about if, that. If I'm on a, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Greatest wow. movie I've ever seen. Yeah. A lot of people say For that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good. Good one. Yeah. Awesome. Hunter, so great to have you on. You know, yeah. I'll be seeing yeah, you again so even this weekend. Michael, you have a good week. Uh, you know, everybody, thanks for um, thanks for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. Uh, we're going to keep this thing going. We're having a good time. We hope you are. So again, find us on YouTube at Regeneration Channel. Uh, put Michael Martin's name in there or Mike Sauter's when you're just Googling it or Podbean, Spotify, other, other uh, podcast listening, you know, the Regeneration Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all again. Yeah, well.